Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The Frankfurt Book Fair is one of the major events in the publishing calendar. This October, it was held against the backdrop of the unfolding war in the Middle East, and it did not hesitate to take a stance. In an official statement, organizers said that, we want to make Jewish and Israeli voices especially visible at the book fair. And they took a further step when they cancelled the event of the only Palestinian scheduled to speak at the fair. Adania Shibley's novel, Minor Detail, reached the final of the National Book Award in America and was supposed to be awarded Germany's Liberator Prize at the fair. But this was cancelled and Shibley herself was not consulted about the decision. A letter was written to protest the action by the founder of Arab Lit magazine, Marsha Links Qualey, and journalist Olivia Snez, incidentally both New Lines writers. And this quickly gained over 1,600 signatures, including three Nobel Prize winners, Hollywood actors, publishers, writers and editors. They wrote of needing writing more than ever in times of conflict, arguing that, I quote, Those of us involved in writing, translation and publishing strongly assert that cancelling cultural events is not the way forward. With me to discuss the role of writing in times of conflict are Selma Debar, British-Palestinian novelist, author of 2011 novel Out of It, inspired by the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and editor of We Wrote in Symbols, a collection of extracts of Arab women writers on love and lust. Judith Gurevich publisher at independent publishing house Other Press and a practising psychoanalyst, and Catherine Halls, an Arabic to English translator and an agent of 1011, an agency for Arabic literature based in Germany and the UK. Selma, Judith, Catherine, welcome to The Lead. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. Good to be here, Lydia. Now, Selma, I'd like to start with you. I know that you know um, Adania Shibley, and in fact, I think you reviewed Minor Detail. As a Palestinian writer based in London, how did you feel when you heard that Shibley had had her award cancelled? Thank you, Lydia. Um, Well, yes, I do know Adania, and quite um, unusually, I actually met her in Naples, where we gave a um, book readings together in a tiny bookshop. and found out that we were sort of staying pretty much in 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 a part in an apartment block in almost in the same building um, in Naples, which was great, and we got on very well. And then I've I've met her since then in London. Um, she's a close friend of E. L. Weitzman of Forensic Architecture, um, and I've met her in his company. So um, I think she's formidable. I've um, one of my first short stories was published with some of hers back in an anthology called Pusat back in two thousand and six, which is short stories by Palestinian women. So there's been this sort of like you know I've been aware of her for a long time. In terms of the question about how I felt, um, I mean, one gets shocked, outraged, and infuriated, particularly. Given, given the context of what was happening to Palestinians at the time, it felt really cruel that there couldn't even be some, on some level, something to celebrate. But um, on the other hand, it it's not so surprising to to say one is shocked almost feels like one is naive because there is there's there's a history here. Carol Churchill, the playwright, had her um, an award um, withdrawn. 
uh, on the basis that she supported boycott, divestment and sanctions, a non-violent movement. Sorry to interrupt. Can you tell me where that was? Where, where was Carol Churchill's cancelled? Right. So that was also in Germany. So the three main ones in Germany um, that I think of um, are Carol Churchill and then also um, Ashil Mbembe. And um, Carol, I think it must have been two years ago now, and it was a major like international award for um, playwriting, which uh, she won. So it was November 22 that the award was cancelled. I mean, it was so humiliating because they, they'd sort of named her as being the person that she who, who was going to get it. And then just before she travelled, it was cancelled. So it's almost like she was smeared with the sort of the allegation of anti-Semitism, which is, is deliberately sort of compounded with the investment and sanctions movement which is totally erroneous um so there was an open letter back in november and again it attracted a lot of um uh supporters from actors and playwrights long-term supporters of her work many of whom are jewish um but the decision wasn't um reversed it stood she did not get the award which was the european drama award uh, which was worth about sixty-five thousand pounds so there is a much longer framework for all of this, and we will get onto that. But first, I just want to stick to Frankfurt for a minute, because, Judith, you were actually there, weren't you? And I, I know that others, others pulled out, notably Haytham al an Egyptian writer based in Berlin, incidentally translated into English by Catherine, which we'll come to. And he wrote to the organisers, a book fair should maintain an open space for debates and discussions, especially in times of conflict. It would feel cynical for me to participate in a panel about translating Arabic literature in such a situation. Did you consider dropping out, Judith? No, I did not. It didn't cross my mind because I felt that I had a privileged position, strangely enough, because I'm Jewish. And um, I felt that as a Jew, I had a lot to say, and I felt that it was very important to somehow take a stand as a Jew, as a Jewish publisher in Germany, with a very, very, I would say, emotional and very critical perspective on what is going on in the Middle East. So I saw that it was very important that I spoke because I had the legitimacy to do it, and I was the voice, I think I was a good voice to criticize what was going on in Israel. And so you saw that as using the platform. Now, Catherine, I think you were supposed to appear. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was supposed to be speaking on a panel uh, with Olivia Snage, who we've just mentioned, um, and a number of other speakers. And I was also supposed to be, I mean, that, that first panel was about Arabic literature in Europe, the translation of Arabic literature in Europe. And I was also supposed to be hosting a panel, which I was really looking forward to, uh, with four uh, very prominent and very talented uh, young Arab writers. Um, now, the first panel I mentioned was uh, co-hosted by Litprom. They were the organization, they are the organization who award the Liberatur Prize, and they were the organization that announced that they were cancelling the prize-giving ceremony um, to Adenia Shibli. Um, it wasn't actually the book fair who, who, who cancelled that, it was Litprom themselves. Uh, and so... Very much like Haytham, I felt that it would be uh, 
disingenuous, quite possibly pointless for me to go and speak about Arabic literature, you know, at the request of an organization which had just cancelled an event about Arabic literature. You know, if you're going to silence one of the most talented and well-known Arabic authors out there today, then then really, what is the point of having panels about Arabic literature and translation? Um, I didn't take that decision lightly, and I really respect, um, you know, Judith's position. I think there were quite a few people there who decided that they really needed to use the opportunity um, to talk about what was going on, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I'm also, as well as, as well as being a translator, I'm also a literary agent. Um, I represent Haytham. I represent a number of other writers who were supposed, supposed to speak at the fair, including Rash Abbas, Mohammed Latour, both of them from Syria, um, Shadi Luis, who lives in the UK, he's Egyptian. Um, and we, we, all, we all discussed together how, how we wanted to approach this issue because they felt incredibly uncomfortable with the idea of, of speaking in that venue, particularly after the statements by Jürgen Bos. Um, the director of the book fair, that he wanted to um, make Israeli and Jewish voices especially visible at the fair. Um, to me, it felt it felt quite underhand the way that, that that all happened because, you know, Litprom with the organization which canceled the event and then the book fair, on the other hand, said, you know, we're going to bring more Israelis and it felt like a real kind of pincer movement. Um, silence, silence Palestinians with one hand and um, to amplify Israeli narratives with the other. So we felt very uncomfortable about that. And I would just add that um, Jürgen Bos is actually the director of both organizations. Um, so that added an extra, extra bit of confusion in there. I mean, so with all of these cancellations, Judith, can you describe to us what the atmosphere was like at the fair? Yes, I can. So I would like to, there are several things that come to mind. Number one, there was a drastic contrast between the organizers and the people there. So it's a little bit like in America. You know, you have the Biden government who says you have to help, you know, Israel defend itself. Israel has a right to self-defense. And then there are 300,000 people in front of Washington, you know, demonstrating. And Jewish Voice for Peace is everywhere. My son actually was on the cover of the nation being handcuffed and with a T-shirt, uh, Jews for Peace. So, you know, there is a real contrast. And I, would, I felt that the exact same contrast was very much alive at the Frankfurt Book Fair. These statements were at odds with the people who were attending. Totally. And, you know, I had two arguments. One argument is in Germany. Germany is probably the, is the only country in Europe who atoned for the Holocaust in the most respectable and visible fashion. They really, really took the drama and the genocide in hand to really say how wrong it was. And they, you know, no, where else do you have these museums and these memorials? So I think the Germans really reckoned with this. And because they reckoned with this, they could, in a way, be a little bit more equanimical when it comes to assess the situation and not fall into a trap where they are the ones starting accusing, you know, Palestinians of, of committing genocide. You have to be a little bit thoughtful about what you're doing, you know, when you, 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 you don't even acknowledge your own history and what you've done with this history. And then I felt that when I spoke... Uh, at Frankfurt, 
I didn't have one, one complaint. Well, the results of censorship certainly hasn't been the intended aim. In, 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 and your experience proves that in terms of the success of selling on this memoir. But also, let's just look at what happened to Shibley's profile after her cancellation from the fair. I mean, her English language publisher, Fitzcarraldo, made it free to download after the news broke. There were 1,500 downloads in the first day. There were, there were marathon reading sessions all over the world in multiple languages. In Berlin, there was this extraordinary sounding day-long event of it being read in Arabic, English and German. I mean, I must confess, now the novel is completely sold out in English. I haven't actually read it. I have to wait until Fitzcarraldo has managed to get out another print run. (laughs) Exactly. The people are not the government. The people are not the organizer. The students are not the donor of universities. I mean, we are really living a moment of radical drift and shift. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I just wanted to pull in the others. Selma, have you, by any chance, seen a similar increased interest in your novel about Palestine since, since the conflict escalated? No, because my book is like 10 years old and I have two careers. So I work partly three days a week. I'm a lawyer and I work for something called the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians here in London. So I've been so taken over with that side of my work. I have been asked to give a lot of talks and I'm working on Palestine, you know, nonstop. It also didn't feel seemly to sort of push it forward and say, look, you know, I've got this Gaza book, but I think it is one of the only books mainly set in Gaza that has, you know, been published by a mainstream publisher like Boomsbury. So maybe I am missing the trick, you know, I, yeah. Is it still in print in America? No, it's not. It went on to me. Send it to me. Well, Judith, thank you. And I want to review that book because I think I read along your book about the prison memoir. I've you mean it's called The Tale of a Wall by uh, Nasser Abu Sur. Judith, can you actually take the opportunity? This Palestinian writer is in prison, but why and how did you get to publish the memoir? Oh, that's such a good question because who is responsible for this? Our Olivia. <laughs> what I'm hearing very clearly in the podcast is the strength of the networks here. But anyway, carry on, carry on with your story. Yeah, what happened is that uh, a dear colleague of mine, somebody I work with very closely, was an agent in Paris called Pierre Astier. We were having breakfast in Paris and, and I said to him, how come you don't sell any Palestinian books to me? And he said, you're right, this is unforgivable. And the next day he calls me, well, I spoke to my friend Olivia and she has just the right book for you. And that's how it happened. It was published in, um, the book was published in Lebanon and, um, and Olivia knew about it. So I gave it to read to uh, a father of a friend of mine who is Palestinian, who is an avid reader because I can't read Arabic. He read it um, in one night and the next morning I get a call from him that it's a non-negotiable thing, it's a masterpiece, I have to buy it. So I bought it without knowing what was in it. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> I was lucky enough, sorry, to, um, to meet a very, very good translator who lives nearby me, who was a professor at Harvard, Luke Lef- Lifgren, and uh, he translated the book. We edited it a bit together and I finally had a chance to read it. And what this book gives you um, is truly the, 
how would I say? It's a memoir. It's also a philosophical investigation. It's a political analysis. It's the life of a young man who grew up in the refugee camp, in the Ida camp. And he explained, you know, what it means to be a refugee in a camp. He explains, you know, his parents were displaced and what is life like there and how the sense of time is removed. You know, you don't know the difference between past, present, and future. And he uses this image of um, children in this village carry their grandparents on their shoulder. So he really gives a very, very moving and introspective vision of what is life in a refugee camp. And he also explains, you know, how uh, life in prison, torture in prison, and how he confessed on the torture. That was the nature of the reason why he was put in prison. It's not explained in the book because he says the torture completely erases his memory. And he also explains, you know, what, what the Oslo Accord were like, um, how he was never released, although he was on two lists to be released after the Oslo Accord. And then he tells an amazing story, love affair, between him and his lawyer, which is the second part of the book. Well, so this is all making me think about the choices we make as editors, writers, translators, all of us. Now, of course, I've always known that those sorts of choices are political. Everything of who, what, when we, pub where we publish or, or choose to platform, for example, here on this podcast. But Frankfurt's decision is a lot more than that, isn't it? There's a, there's a really quite fundamental question here about the, the role and the stance of the publishing sector. Should they really be quite so nakedly partisan as to promote Jewish-Israeli and Jewish and Israeli voices um, and actually cancel the events of the only Palestinian invited. I take your point, Catherine. Thank you for the clarification. It wasn't Frankfurt itself who cancelled, but given that the head of both Litprom and the Frankfurt Book Fair is the same person, things did get murky. But to get back to the question, I would defend anyone's right to follow their moral compass in the work we do and defend the right to deplatform, for example, an acidist who had been complicit in mass violence in Syria. So how do we have these discussions? How do we draw a line of who to invite and who to exclude when far bigger political issues are at play? I can hear somebody wants to jump in. Was that you, Judith? Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I, I think it's extremely important to distinguish the issue... I would say the, the, the ghost of anti-Semitism. It's a ghost that needs to be deconstructed. And unfortunately, there are few people who take that on very, very seriously. There is Enzo Traverso, who is amazing that way. There's people like Sylvain Sipel, who wrote a book, The State of Israel Versus the Jews. There are many Jewish intellectuals that are extremely appalled. There's Sarah Roy, there was an amazing piece she wrote in the London Review of Books last, last, this week, I think. What, the key is you, you have to distinguish the, the ghost of anti-Semitism and other political issue. And I think this is what made people so nervous. And, and the problem is, is that it's not really what it should be about. Because first of all, Anti-Semitism is something that's unacceptable, but there is also an anti-Semitism that may be appearing that is, in fact, a critique of Israel that is not the same as anti-Semitism, considering all the Jews that are fighting against Israel today. 
So I do think that there, there was a kind of a knee-jerk reaction because the fact that, you know, Israel has been milking the situation from the beginning, using anti-Semitism as an excuse to do all kinds of things and not well, good ones. Well, and I also, I mean, Salma's already touched on something that I wanted to, to draw out a little, and that was a much broader, wider context for this. You, you mentioned something... Um, Carol Churchill happened two years ago. So it isn't just this conflict um, that has triggered these sorts of reactions. And, and I actually spoke to Haytham Alwardney, who's come up a couple of times, about his decision to withdraw. And he also put the incident in a far wider context. He said to me, and I quote, we are living in an atmosphere where migrant cultural workers who come from Arabic, Islamic, or Middle Eastern backgrounds are suspected and demonized. They have to prove they are not anti-Semitic. They are not racist. Catherine, you're familiar with this situation and represent Haytham and other writers in Germany. Do you feel that this decision um, is in line with German attitudes to Arabs and Muslims more generally? Yeah, thanks, Lydia. Yeah, you're right. Quite a few of the authors that I represent at 1011 are based in Germany and, in fact, in Berlin. So I'm, I, I spend some time there myself. Um, and there's definitely a, a longer history to this. I mean, even just the campaign against Adania, it started way back in spring when she was first nominated for the Liberatur Prize, and she, um, she's been smeared as anti-Semitic in the press. And as Judith has just um has just said, what we're seeing is a really concerted attempt to use anti-Semitism in bad faith uh, to shield Israel from very legitimate criticism of its actions. And that that is being used to target very specific people um, in Germany. It's being primarily used against people, like Haytham said, uh, of Middle Eastern descent or of, um, you know, who are Muslim um, or who are racialized in some way. And it's also being used against leftist Jews. Um, demonstrations in Berlin, which have been organized by Jewish and Palestinian activists, have been banned again and again and again and again. Uh, and Jewish Voice for Peace, which just celebrated its um, 20th uh, birthday in Berlin, um, they're, they're, the, the venue which was hosting their birthday celebration was threatened with... Um, uh, threatened that the, the Senate would withdraw its funding when they announced that they would be hosting that event. So it's really, um, it's accusations of anti-Semitism are being used very, very aggressively to, to target activists and other voices um, who, who aren't palatable to the German mainstream uh, discourse on Israel and Palestine. And I will just add that I think what a lot of people in the culture, you know, a lot of culture workers find so incredibly scary about this is that all the while, uh, you know, right-wing actors like the AfD are permitted to walk in the streets under police protection. They they have their demonstrations where they call for all manner of uh, racist and uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim horrors and the police... Sorry, quickly explain what AfD is. Yeah, the AfD is the Alternative für Deutschland, who are a far-right party who've been doing, you know, gaining increasing um, representation in, in various regions of Germany. Uh, they're really on the rise and it's terrifying. So culture workers are, are, are looking at, at this, looking at the police protection that's given to, to right-wing uh, activists like the AfD and others, 
And then they're seeing their own events, which in many cases are, you know, book book launches, um, conferences, uh, prize giving ceremonies. And they're seeing them cancelled. Uh, it wasn't just Adonis, um Adonis ceremony at Frankfurt that's been cancelled recently. There was also the launch of a poetry book uh, by Arab authors living in Europe uh, that had a a scheduled launch at the House de Poesie uh, in Berlin that was cancelled recently. There was an academic conference organised by Michael Rothberg and uh, Candice Breitz, who are both academics. Um, A play called The Situation by an Israeli uh, director was due to take place at the Gorky Theatre. That was cancelled. So we're seeing, you know, peaceful cultural events being cancelled across the board. And meanwhile, there is a very, very real threat of far-right activism and indeed violence in Germany, which seems to be going unchecked. Well, both you and Judith have have hinted at the reason why, and, 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 and they're very obvious. You know, many people have pointed them out. They're so aware of their recent past, their country's role in the need for the creation of a Jewish homeland, that they're now overcompensating somewhat in support, blind support for Israel. But I'd like to probe that a little by, by, by comparing to the rest of the world. Selma, you're based in London. How do you feel about equivalent, equivalent actions happening in the UK? I would say that what's happening in the UK, maybe put it in the context of a sort of a global movement to close down on Palestinian space. Uh, there are some connections which, you know, are international. And one of them is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which in its examples, uh, seven of those examples, directly conflate um, anti-Semitism, which is, you know, prejudice against Jews, which is always in all circumstances unforgivable, but it conflates it with anti-Zionism, so, or any criticism of Israel. And this has led to, this has caused untold damage. A lot of the original drafters are now trying to distance themselves from this definition. These, um, I think the man, Kenneth Stern, one of the academics, saying it's unfit for purpose. That's not how they, what they designed it to be used as, but it is being pushed out from the government in this country to the point to the point where it's closing down on academic space. I was at Goldsmiths University where I did my PhD, and there you found like a culling of some of the departments which uh, touched on the Middle East. Uh, often I felt, and obviously I'm quite Palestinian-centric in terms of my worldview, but I felt that closing down on Palestinian space was the kernel. And then if you look at it, there are these sort of concentric circles around it. So anything to do with sort of decolonization debates is is one of those circles which is under attack um and you know and all of saidian thought i mean edward said has such a massive legacy in in academic uh, circles not just in you know politics sociology literature so these are also being clamped down on and then it's all being branded as being somehow woke you know this term of wokeism and that's one level of attack through the mainstream media as well as through academic institutions but I think that there's, we should also see that this is not coincidence or a mass movement of people saying we need to protect, you know, Jewish students on campus. Let's organize. It's not that. You can see that there are direct financial um, links going back to lobbying groups which are supportive of Israel. It's a long term plan to sort of close on these spaces. It's partly in a way, we should say, well, we were becoming very effective. Our writing, our films, our academia, our voices were becoming more powerful and they were having an impact. So was BDS. 
So was, you know, the use of things like international criminal law to, to, to cause accountability. So that's why the backlash has been so, so incredibly, the amount of money put in to these, um, to these groups which are trying to close down on our space is phenomenal. So it's going to keep on happening. I think in Germany, what I find disturbing is the idea that somehow German white intellectuals should really be the ones who are determining what anti-Semitism is, given their history. But it does seem to be far worse in Germany. France is also pretty tough. England, I would say, is a bit better. But uh, there is still some pretty nasty cases. There's a group called the European Legal Support Centre. Anyone who's listening who's had problems like this in terms of being smeared or defamed in the US as Palestine legal, we are trying to defend this space, but it's pretty tough going. Does this sound um, familiar to you, Judith, over in America? Yes, you know, but in America, it's very complex because you do have an enormous, I would say, young Jewish solidarity with Palestinians. And then you have the rest, you know, and then you have this, these, uh, you have APAC and you have all the billionaires giving money to universities and university being extremely anxious. And you have the professors and the students completely shocked by something that has never been so visible before, you know. How money runs the academic world is not something people like to talk about, but now it's out there. Well, I wonder if could I just could I just yeah. add something there, um, particularly, um, yeah, I'd just like to add something to what what Salma said um, because she she brought up this term woke, which you know gets bandied around a lot in the UK, and I'm glad you brought that up, Salma, because what I think is so interesting about what's happening right now is that we've you know in this in this so called sort of war on woke, we've always been told that freedom of speech, you know, is uh, a value that must be held above all and that everybody should be allowed to speak, you know, whether it's trans exclusionary rad radical feminists or whether it's, you know, right wingers, you know, we have to give them all a platform and deplatforming is bad. And suddenly our right to freedom of speech evaporates when it comes to Palestine. Yeah. And I think that that just goes to show how, you know, how transparently bad faith that kind of discourse about free speech and yeah, and I just, I mean, I just to sort of tie with what you're saying, I, I really would say that, that we are, the movements here are very much also, there are very strong um, Jewish movements that, you know, Palestinian movements are connected with. I don't think, I, I don't know. There's also, there have been attacks on, on people, you know, Jewish intellectuals and Jewish politicians. I mean, the Labour Party, the routing out of people of Jewish heritage who were, pro-Palestinian has been vicious under Starmer and is documented in the Labour Files, the Al Jazeera documentary. And I think what we're finding, not just with freedom of expression, but with a lot of freedoms, like the right to protest, the protests on Saturday here, there's a full-scale, you know, attempt by Suella Braverman to get these closed down, to have them labelled as hate speeches in a way which very worryingly is stirring up sort of very right-wing groups to go out and attack them. There's very careless language being used around the way that Palestinians are being dehumanised and attacked, which is really of great concern. And it seems to be the last, you know, in a way, the last group that you can say whatever you want about, and it's totally acceptable, and you won't be challenged on it. And it also seems to be the testing ground for liberal democracies, as far as I see it, because there's also the closure of the space around the right to boycott, 
it's freedom of expression, it's academic freedom. And I think for us talking and anyone listening, I think it's very important for them not to be overly sensitive to any kind of chill factor that they might feel to check out their rights, to think about how they can push back and to mobilize together because this is their democracy and their freedoms. It's not just a foreign policy thing now. One one thing I just want to quickly add, which is really shocking, because, you know, I'm an independent publisher. I can say whatever I want. But if I had a job, you know, in a law firm, I would be kicked out. And I think that's the part that is so petrifying. And also students, you know, they've been tagged, they've been followed, they've been denounced. It, this is the part that is the most frightening thing I've seen in a very, very long time. Yeah, and I have to remember here that the culture uh, and art sectors, um, you know, are so, well, much more in Europe than the USA, of course, but um, are, are so kind of widely supported by public money at the moment. That's the case in the UK where I'm from. It's also the case in Germany where like some of our books are published, you know, they're published with subsidies from organizations like Litprom uh, in the UK, you know, there's money that comes from the Arts Council and so on. And I think that's another really worrying factor for those of us who work in the arts, the idea that these um, this kind of crackdown on uh, in individuals and organizations who support Palestine or who support BDS in particular, uh, the idea that they you know, might lose access to their funding and then there's going to be a whole slew of voices which we just don't hear anymore. And that's, that's really worrying. It really is. Well, that neatly brings it back to writing and publishing rather than the wider social context that you've all been discussing. And I have to say my overriding impression, although I totally understand everything you've been saying about the chill factor on freedom of speech, but if we draw it back specifically to publishing and specifically to what happened in Frankfurt, my overriding impression is the creation of solidarity that the world showed over and above the censorship of a Palestinian voice. Absolutely. And that, 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 that solidarity came from so many places, the letter of support that, that was in my introduction, but also mainstream newspapers like the New York Times, The Guardian. They've stood in very strong support of allowing writers to speak at precisely these times. And networks have strengthened as a result of coming together to support Shibley. So I'd like to ask all of you as a final question, if you too feel that something positive has come out of this decision to cancel the events of the only Palestinian at Frankfurt. I'll start with you, Judith, because I think you already started. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I find it so incredibly, how would I put it? I mean, I'm, I'm such a beneficiary of it that I feel almost ashamed, you know? So I don't know if I should be speaking first. Okay, Selma. Well, I think it, it's wonderful how people came together and those letters were signed. And I think that's great. And I think that the more coverage we can have of these things, it, it, it's fantastic. I think that there are going to be a lot of people who will just get quite nervous and feel that it's just too hot to handle. They don't, they're not well versed enough in it. They don't know how to argue the terrain. I hope that the net result is a benefit and that publishing houses become more curious and become more daring and they don't think that this is just something that they can drop because it's a little bit tricky and it might upset people but they can think okay this is obviously a really serious issue for the 21st century if not the most serious issue let's have more voices let's have more debate we are the space which should be 
the freest and the most ballsy. That's what I hope. Oh, I really hope so, Catherine. I think so. I think so. I mean, you know, what I lived through in Frankfurt, I don't think I, you know, Gallimard never bought a book from me for 20 years. That's my first book. A Palestinian prisoner. It's the first book Gallimard has ever bought from other press. That's that's a statement all by itself. Catherine, do you hold out the same hope? Well, it's really nice to hear about the success of Judith's book. That's definitely a good sign. And it has been heartening to see the expressions of solidarity, both with Adenia and with Palestinians and Gazans more broadly. I have to say, though, I'm not, not terribly, I'm not feeling terribly optimistic right now. It's, 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 Look, I mean, my job is I translate Arabic literature into English. Um, Underpinning what I do is an idea that people um, who speak English, people who are, you know, probably based in the West, in the UK or in the USA, um, care about and want to hear about what Arabs are saying and what they're writing. And watching a genocide unfold before our eyes while the world does nothing about it really makes me question that understanding. Um, and it's been just very, very painful to, to, to watch that and also to talk to Arab friends who Palestinian and otherwise, you know, say that they feel like, you know, people really simply don't believe in their humanity in the West. Um, and that has kind of cut very deep, um, when I think about, you know, my work and, and why I'm doing it. So I'm, I, I, I think we're in a very dark place and I find it hard to find hope right now. Um, but I do very much hope that, you know, Judith and Salma are right, that there, that there are reasons to be hopeful about, you know, about the situation in general and about the role of literature within it. I can also quickly say that Raja Shehade, who is a Palestinian writer, has been shortlisted for the National Book Award in the States. So now, of course, the, what's going to happen next? Is literature going to win over politics, you know? Salma Dabar, Judith Gorowicz, Catherine Halls, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.